The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. Not on. Oh, thank you. I, I have to, before I start my talk, I have to do just a little bit of a preamble because I can. I always assume there are people who are here who I have not spoken to before, and I want to explain that um, just about everything that I write is integrative of Christian and Buddhist teachings. It's not just straight Buddha Dhamma. Uh, Joseph Goldstein told me that he saw my mission as bringing this practice to Christians. And uh, this is my 25th year of offering Buddhist Christian retreats. Um, so the talks that I do, you will find integrative of traditions. So with that little bit of explanation, I'm ready to go then. Most religious mythologies have some notions of heaven and hell. Okay, good enough. It still sounds kind of loud, doesn't it? Well, maybe I can talk a little softer, although I'm accustomed to throwing the voice way out there. I would bet everyone would hear me, but but I thought they were. They said they were recording it. Is this just for sound, not recording? going <laughs> but if it's if it's uncomfortably loud for people that's not helpful either I might have a more vigorous voice than you're accustomed to also that sounds a little better to me everybody is hearing okay good so we'll start again Most religious mythologies have notions of heaven and hell, and of course they depict heaven as the best of all possible conditions and hell as the worst. In Eastern thought, heaven and hell are closely tied to teachings about rebirth, realms of existence, and karma, the law of moral cause and effect. They teach that these different experiences of heaven and hell occur lawfully as an effect of states of mind that we cultivate. And this talk, as you know, is called Visiting Heaven and Hell. Now, there are various depictions of realms in in different of the Buddhist traditions. Um, I'm going to follow one that I particularly like. And these teachings are remarkably similar to Christian ones about heaven and hell. Both see our choices as determining which realms we'll experience. 
But you don't need to believe any religious ideas to understand experiencing heaven and hell. All of us at some times live in the mind states that reflect these conditions. Our Buddhist teachings say that greed, hatred, and delusion are the foundation of kilesa, a Pali word that literally means torment of the mind. In the ascent of Mount Carmel, Christian mystic John of the Cross also said that our inordinate appetites weary, torment, darken, defile, and weaken us. These torments produce the various kinds of sufferings that create hells. Buddhist thought also describes levels of purification of the mind, each bringing its own heavenly experience. The first major purification is that of conduct, abandoning transgression. Next is purification of mental contents, abandoning unwholesome states of mind. And finally comes the purification of the remaining dross that obscures the pure consciousness, karmic garbage, or you could say the residual effects of sin. And each of these purifications brings a different kind of heavenly experience. The lowest realms with the most suffering are the hell realms. Religions usually describe hell as the worst of the environment in which their tradition developed. In Nordic thought, hell is endless, icy coldness. In Semitic religions, it's a burning pit. Some traditions refine their notion of hell by considering oppressive psychological environments also. Christianity, with its burning pit, teaches that loss of God is the most terrible torment of hell. A mind dominated by hatred, the worst torment of the mind, produces hell realms. This aversive state of mind ranges from actual malevolence through ill will, anger, resentment, bad temper, annoyance, impatience, self-dislike, fear, and similar conditions. The hells, for there are a number of them, differ in intensity and type of suffering. The very lowest hell realms of all are said to be reserved for those who harm a Buddha, kill a holy person, or kill a parent. A Christian analogy of all these hells is Dante's description of different rings of hell depending upon the reasons that put one there. In the hells, we burn with ill will, but are never completely consumed by it, so we continue to suffer. As we burn, we're so immersed in the mind's raging fire that nothing but suffering exists. Since hatred makes only more hatred, getting out of such a state is difficult, although the Buddhist hells are not eternal. However, we might spend a long time there if we wind up there and can also be reborn there 
for one or more lifetimes. Hell represents pure, unadulterated suffering. Whether you think of it as a state that you've inhabited at times during this life, like when you're consumed with anger, or a place to which you might condemn yourself for a future lifetime, our Christianity would say, for an eternity. Buddhist teachings say that the hell realms are for education and purification of one's being. We experience hell in this life in anger or one of its cousins. Anger puts an aggressive and rough coloration on the mind and defiles us. As a metaphor for an angry mind, the Buddhist said, quote, Imagine a bowl of water heated on a fire, boiling up and bubbling over. If someone with good eyesight looks at their face's reflection in it, they could not see it as it really is. Close quote. Anger is a form of self-inflicted suffering in which we do to ourselves what only an enemy would wish for us. Anger is a common response when things are not going the way we want them to go. Its ferocious character burns up its own support, the body and mind experiencing it. A student of mine said, Anger feels to me like a hot flame shooting up, but resentment, which hangs around, is more like a bed of smoldering coals. Many people make friends with anger, with such notions as righteous indignation, just war, or anger needed to be motivated to right wrongs. Some people even enjoy anger in spite of the suffering it inflicts on both self and others. The Buddha said that to repay angry people in kind is worse than to be angry first because we're allowing someone of whom we do not approve to dictate our conduct. We respond to someone with behavior that we judged wrong in the other person. Scriptures the world over are full of injunctions against anger. Christians are told that they're not in the light when they hate another and that we are to rid ourselves of anger, quick temper, malice, and slanderous insults. The messages are clear. Do not let the sun go down while still angry and always act without grumbling or arguing. The Buddha described seven ill effects of anger. It makes us look ugly. It puts us in pain. It makes us prone to making mistakes because fury clouds the mind. We might act in ways that cause us legal trouble. We also fall into disrepute and disgrace because others don't trust easily angered people. Since being around angry people is unpleasant, we lose friends. Finally, if anger becomes our habitual state, we do set up a tenure in hell. 
you might wonder why I speak about anger to people doing spiritual practice. We're not completely free of it until we're awfully far down the road. John of the Cross spoke explicitly of how it manifests in spiritually minded people. He was well aware that we might irately target circumstances, other people, or ourselves when we're dissatisfied. And he said some people become angry over the faults of others, setting themselves up as lords of virtue. And we might zealously watch over others, want to reprove them, and sometimes angrily indulge the desire to do so. Just as such moral vigilance is not new in our age, neither is angry self-dissatisfaction. A quote from John of the Cross. We might become annoyed about our imperfections with an impatience that lacks humility. The more resolves we make and break, the angrier we become. Close quote. Some people become peeved when a spiritual teacher doesn't meet their expectations or gratify their whims or when a practice fails to be an instant salvation. Quote, when pleasure passes, we might become embittered and easily irritated by the least thing. Close quote. John of the Cross again. Hatred is more represent, reprehensible but easier to remove than greed or delusion because it's so much more painful in itself than the other two. The Buddhist teachings are full of practical advice with good ways to remove resentments. First, maintain loving kindness toward one toward whom you are annoyed. If you can't do this, at least maintain compassion. Remember that angry people are suffering. They're feeling attacked and experiencing loss. The Buddha taught, quote, Understanding another's angry mood, you can help that one clear it and find peace. Close quote. He also taught that we can learn to ignore provocation. Reacting to anger or ill treatment often only increases it. If we must stop another person's actions, we can act without the heat of anger. Finally, we can think of the effects on the other person. Those who live in hatred develop a heart that draws suffering to itself. Quote, I'm sure you've all heard one of the most famous from the Buddha's teachings. Quote, this person abused me, beat me, and overcame and plundered me. Wrapped up in such thought, one will never appease hatred. Stripped bare of such thoughts, hatred is quickly appeased. Never by hatred is hatred appeased, but only by love. This is an eternal law. Close quote. Reflecting on another's bad habits feeds anger. If we truly want to overcome it, we must think what good we can of others. Giving a gift to or accepting a gift from 
someone who angers us helps overcome animosity. And psychological studies have confirmed this ancient wisdom from the Buddhist tradition. Either friendly or hostile approaches strongly tend to draw the same response from another person. We're going to move on to the next realm up from the bottom, the realm of hungry ghosts who are dominated by greed. Like hatred, greed covers a wide range of attitudes, avarice, lust, gluttony, addictions, and compulsions. Hungry ghosts are depicted as having huge bodies with a tiny pinpoint of a mouth so that they are constantly hungry, a symbolic expression of how greed feels. John of the Cross offered a similar image. Quote, the appetite is the mouth of the will. When it is centered on something, it becomes narrow by this very fact. Close quote. Anything that we humans can hanker for, some of us will hanker for. The list is endless. No one of us has not known the realm of hungry ghosts, being full of yearning for the one thing we're convinced we need to be happy. Most of us have also realized that getting what we wanted doesn't really do the job. Instead of feeling full, we usually feel even hungrier. John of the Cross listed six major types of goods for which we might be greedy. First are temporal goods. These include riches, position, status, fame, marriage, relatives, and family. Now, such things are not bad in themselves, but the weakness of human nature makes attachment to them very likely. We could become reluctant to share people in our lives to be at peace with our friends, having other friendships. Some people want to completely own their family members. John spoke next of natural goods, quote, beauty, grace, attractiveness, other bodily endowments, good intelligence, discretion, and other abilities, close quote. We can very easily get heady about our own assets and even consider spiritual experiences to be personal possessions. We're very prone to consider our own opinions the best simply because they're ours. Clinging to opinions is one of the most pernicious threats to spiritual well-being. Then John went to sensory goods, Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and imagination. We all have some limiting attachments to sensory stimulation. We cling to such things out of fear or greed. We think, I need this, or I must have this. We feel empty, so we eat or drink too much or distract ourselves with other momentary pleasures. When we turn to memory, 
and imagination, we become fascinated with our own inner life and get caught up in imaginative meandering and wishful fabrications. John said that we move to a different level with moral goods, virtues, good habits, good manners, morality, and works of mercy. These, he taught, have direct spiritual value in contrast to attachments to frail and perishable goods. Moral goods, quote, bring along with them peace, tranquility, a right and ordered use of reason, and actions resulting from mature deliberation. Humanly speaking, a person cannot have any nobler possession in this life. Close quote. Yet even these goods cause harm if we wrongly grasp them. They can make us vain and presumptuous and lead us to look down on others. Self-satisfaction might make us unable to take advice from others. We could become unable to consider arguments for opinions that oppose our own. John had strong concerns about his next level of goods, supernatural goods, he called them, powers that exceed ordinary human ones like healing, miracles, prophecy, and visions. Many people seeking some taste of spiritual nectar look wherever they think it might be found. The loudest signals come from the blatantly miraculous so it frequently draws such people. Each year, they give millions of dollars to various new instant salvations and to many money-grabbing older ones. John considered interest in supernatural affairs to be potentially very dangerous. He taught that attaching any importance to them is an error because we can so easily deceive ourselves with them we're likely to see only what comforts us and might misuse what is genuine when desires are governing us. Such experiences can also make us vain and don't give us lasting joy. John last considered spiritual goods. He held that they can help us maintain spiritual living, but they also can be a trap. Wrongly used, we become attached to the object rather than what the object points to. John himself took away religious objects from monks and nuns when he saw that they were clinging to them. He taught, quote, many can never have enough counsels, guidelines, or books. Once you know what you've been told for your benefit, you don't need to go in search of new things that only serve to satisfy appetite. Close quote. Once our spiritual life starts to develop, meditative pleasures come. Beginning meditators don't always believe that, but they do eventually come. And then, of course, attachment to them follows. We might work to get some sweetness or satisfaction from our practices. And if we fail in this, feel like we've accomplished nothing. We might even think that practice is about sensory satisfaction and tire ourselves trying to get it. 
We also sometimes wrongly judge the value of a practice by the pleasure it gives us or how holy it might make us feel. Persons dominated by greed of any kind are never fully satisfied. They cannot get enough. When in the grip of greed, we always feel undernourished, like we're completely unable to be satisfied. We don't know when enough is enough. And appetites fed only clamor more loudly the next time. John of the Cross taught that when we satisfy appetites, we suffer in two ways. First, we have to detach ourselves from them and then cleanse ourselves of what has clung to us from them. The realm of the demons are jealous gods comes next. Scriptures depict them as very similar to Christianity's fallen angels. They're dominated by competitiveness, envy, jealousy, and ambition. They're concerned that someone else might be thought better of or have more of any asset than they have. They're always on the lookout to ensure that someone else does not come out ahead in any way. And when others are better off, they become sad. John of the Cross spoke of both pride and envy in spiritual practitioners. We easily get caught up in our own apparent goodness. Quote, we feel so fervent and diligent in our spiritual practices that we develop secret pride. We become satisfied with ourselves and our accomplishments. Close quote. He added that we also tend to minimize our faults. Wanting admiration, quote, we are eager for others to see us as spiritual and devout, so we scheme to parade it in somehow and are very pleased when others notice it. We might contrive to make manifestations of devotion like sighs and other ceremonies and often be quite eager for others to see these actions. Drawn by vanity and arrogance, we allow ourselves to be seen in exterior acts of apparent holiness, such as raptures and other exhibitions. Close quote. John also noted that we might dislike praising others, but love to receive praise. Quote, other spiritual good displeases us. We do not want others to be praised, and we try to deny their virtues. Close quote. We feel that others' good somehow demeans or diminishes us. We might want to keep from other people understanding, insights, solutions to problems, and the like. We might even want to deprive them of what will help them grow in meditation. These kinds of mind states reflect delusion, which holds demons in its grip. Excessive self-importance and self-preference comes from not seeing clearly. In delusional egotism, we feel distinct from everything else that exists and feel uniquely special. We suffer from our vigilance to protect and enhance that overgrown sense of ego. 
we fail to realize that we all comprise one organismic whole. We're still in the suffering realms, and the next suffering realm is the animal kingdom. Once when I explained this, a woman who knows my love of cats commented, quote, a suffering realm unless you're a cat in this household, close quote. I do try to make life nice for my little ones. However much we might care about some animals, their lives usually do involve great suffering. Most of them live with constant threat and danger, seldom having the comfort of any security. They often die violently or from lack of basic needs. The principal mind state here is ignorance or dullness. This general not knowing makes it difficult to develop any generosity and morality. Such unconsciousness, simply not seeing reality truly, also lies behind all greed, aversion, and delusion. It can lead to strong laziness. John of the Cross taught that virtue is sapped when we're unwilling to continue practice when it becomes boring or difficult. We could easily completely abandon our spiritual endeavor since it requires persistent, continuous commitment. He also said that some are mistaken in thinking that excessive hours of prayer or abusing the body will help. Like the Buddha, he advocated a middle way, but warned that we're in delusion if we think that we can complete our path without emptying out all competing appetites. When we flee from being completely awake into excessive television, sleep, eating, sex, or work, when we dull our awareness of reality, we're in the ignorance of animal mind. We can also blunt awareness with the ego defense mechanisms that distort reality that's too painful, embarrassing, or inconvenient to accept. These lies that we tell ourselves protect our self-image and worldview when they're threatened with information that could force us to change how we see ourselves in our world. Clouding our minds with mind or mood-altering chemicals also takes away mental clarity and leaves us in the ignorance of animal mind. All realms below the human one are considered woeful ones based on unwholesome mind states. We earn being human by developing some minimum generosity and morality. The human realm is considered very fortunate with just the right mixture of suffering and pleasure to foster spiritual practice. Our suffering moves us but does not overwhelm us. Too much suffering or pleasure makes one incapable of or unmotivated for spiritual practice. We're not very far from the lower realms Many beings are far more developed than we are. Remembering this helps us to be gentle with ourselves 
and not get down on ourselves when we make mistakes. But it also ought to spur us to do our spiritual work, realizing that a lot remains to be done before our consciousness is ready to touch Nibbana. The moral, ethical dimension of spiritual life prerequisite for all higher spiritual experience is an initial necessary area of work for us. First, we must stop all outrageous violations of a basic moral code. However, we must not be satisfied with simply avoiding serious transgressions, but constantly work for a greater purity that makes us able to work on the higher purifications, those of mental content and of the residual wayward tendencies that cling to consciousness. Becoming increasingly generous is also extremely important because it's the opposite of the closed-fistedness of clinging. Higher development of the qualities that define the human being, generosity and morality, produces a deva realm. Devas are said to be greatly attracted to humans who are generous and moral and often give them protection and guidance of which they might not even be aware. This is rather like the Christian idea of guardian angels because the devas are are described much like both them and Christianity's archangels or messenger angels. Some Buddhists report being tended by devas just as some Christians experience angelic visitation. And I have a story from Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg on this. When they were visiting Deepama in Calcutta once, after they came out, they found that it was the rainy season and they found that the streets had been flooded. And when this happens, the sewers blow open and all sorts of junk is floating throughout the streets. And the rickshaws usually quit running because too many drivers have disappeared down the sewer holes. And so they looked at each other rather dismayed and figured they were going to have to wade through all that gunk back to their hotel. And all of a sudden, two people were at hand beside them and said, our house is just around the corner. Please be our guest until the water goes down. And so they spent a couple of hours with these people, and then the water had receded enough that the streets were walkable. And after thanking them, they left. The next day, they said, you know, we really didn't thank them enough. Let's go back and find them and thank them again. And they went back to the same corner. They could not find the house, and they described the people to others around. Nobody recognized them. Um, They told me they're convinced that they were visited by devas when they were in need at that time. Since deva bodies can be seen by us, um, Hindu yoga teaches that important teachers sometimes revisit earth in a deva body. They can go through solid objects or materialize suddenly while still being able to speak, touch others, eat, and engage in other human activities. Their bodies have something different about them, but they can be recognized by the teacher's disciples. And usually the returning teacher wanted to give some final instructions, so came back in a deva body. 
Descriptions of the Deva realms are delightful. We experience great sensual and mental enjoyment in an atmosphere of moral purity. Subtle bodies are ripe for pleasure without any of the problems of earthly bodies. And Deva realms offer a range of pleasant experiences, heavenly arts, sensory delights, intellectual highs, pleasing company, blissful happiness, without any of the darker experiences we encounter on earth. These realms sound very much like how some Christians understand heaven. They see it as a place where they'll have their bodies back in a subtle form. They expect to be with family and friends and to have delightful experiences all the time. This is the heaven sought by those who say they'll be happy if they can just get their foot inside the door. These heavens are truly delightful, places of great happiness, but we can hope for much more. Just as we can experience the lower realms in our earthly life, so also the deva realms. When we're moral and generous, we experience a special glow of happiness. This very real happiness is subtler than the sensory pleasures that our culture typically seeks. Most people have probably experienced Deva realm mentality at some time in their lives. Higher next are the form Brahma realms, which sound like a different kind of Christian heaven where one knows God. Lesser delights, even those of Deva realms, become too gross to appeal when faced with the joy of the form Brahma realms. Beings in these realms are like the Christian higher angels who guard and protect goodness. Their extremely subtle bodies are beings of light. Purity of mental content creates these realms. To attain them, we must eliminate all obsessive impurities, the grinding around of the mind on unwholesome mind states. When the mind is free of fears, anxieties, hankering, resentments, sadness, and so on, we experience a pronounced happiness. Once tasted, we know that it's superior to any possible sensual pleasure. Meditation, of course, is our tool for coming to this purity of mental content. We sit still in the utter poverty of surrendering choice about what we will experience, letting go of even thinking itself, simply to pay attention to what comes. What comes first is usually about our own body and mind. We'll see many different memories, emotions, and motives that were previously hidden from us. Patterns of our own behavior, often very distressing, then come to clear sight. All the dross from which we had turned our attention because it was too painful or humiliating to see stands out starkly and unavoidably. Looking at and accepting these experiences gradually cleanses the heart and mind of them. We cannot bypass this painful self-knowledge. The only way out is through 
When we have sufficiently seen and acknowledged our own mental garbage, it simply lifts off. The mind gets lighter and lighter, and our happiness gets increasingly refined. We realize that we had had no idea how painful it was to have all these mental torments intruding into our minds. We can experience this freedom from mental torments in our earthly lives also and come to live in it. Still higher in the formless Brahma realms, we see only what is good. Christians could say God. There is no want, need, or disturbance of any kind. Beings there have no bodies but are continuously engrossed in beautiful states of mind. In this heaven, the highest Christian angels are endlessly wrapped in the, in the presence of the beauty, truth, and goodness of God. And this draws forth the unceasing cry of holy, holy, holy from them. Christians say all these beings do is enjoy the bliss of contemplating God. Buddhist teachings say that four beautiful mind states predominate in one of these formless Brahma realms. These are what are called the Brahma Viharas, our heavenly abodes. Most of you have probably practiced it. The first is metta, our loving kindness toward all beings, an attitude of friendliness and care about the welfare of all, much like Christian agape love. The second of these heavenly mind states is karuna, compassion, the quivering of one's heart in response to another's pain. The third attitude is the more difficult one of mudita, our sympathetic joy. It means experiencing another's good with the same delight as if it were one's own. No envy or jealousy, just true happiness. that another is faring well. This is considered the most difficult Brahma-vihara to cultivate. John of the Cross recommended that we go about, quote, rejoicing in the good of others as if it were our own, close quote. So he also promoted this heavenly mind state. The final of these Brahma-viharas, or divine resting places, is upeka, or equanimity. The acceptance without exception of how lives turn out. And undisturbed okayness with life and experience. This rules out all argument, complaint, and other whining. It doesn't mean that we do not act to change what needs to be changed and is within our power to change. John of the Cross said, quote, The endurance of all with tranquil and peaceful equanimity not only reaps many blessings, but also helps us judge adversities and employ the proper remedy, close quote. We can cultivate these attitudes in our earthly life when we have sufficient purity of mental content. When thoroughly steeped in them, we increasingly live in the world with an attitude of divine love. John of the Cross told his Christian followers that eventually we come to love with God's love 
and know with God's understanding. Could there be more than this? Yes, say both traditions. It comes with the removal of the final dross clinging to us, of what blinds us to being within the very heart of God, full oneness with God, are dying into Nibbana as our resting place. Mystics like John of the Cross and Meister Eckhart speak of this, beyond any conception of a heaven, beyond anything smacking of thingness, with no separation at all. John of the Cross said, quote, God seeks to make us gods through participation, just as fire converts all things into fire, close quote. We can't force but only dispose ourselves for this. We continue to meditate. We make ourselves available to the cleansing that's being perfected within our being. We'll be assaulted by the armies of Christian Satan or Buddhist Mara, evil personified. And as we're exorcised, we're burnt with the fire that, as John of the Cross poetically said, transforms the log it's burning into fire itself. And slowly over time, in little steps and some larger leaps, it can come. John wrote of his experience in a way that any Buddhist could write of touching Nibbana. Quote, all things ceased. I went out from myself. Close quote. Went out into that which is beyond any concept or understanding or image of God or heaven. We touch and finally die into Nibbana the unborn, the undying, the unchanging, the unconditioned reality. Call it Godhead, as Christian mystic Meister Eckhart put it, Vedantic Brahman, Kabbalist Einsoff, Nibbana, whatever name you choose to use. The seeker has entered the ultimate that lies beyond all manifest reality. Somebody once asked Joseph, so many different names. When I have the big experience, how do I know which one it is I'm experiencing? Joseph said, it doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is that you experience it. Surely this is more than the highest of all possible heavens. So Buddhist teachings say that we will be reborn in all these different realms, according to the main mind state at the time of death, which will usually be our most habitual one. And when there's sufficient purity for Nibbana, rebirth ends, as we no longer need purgative experiences. Some Buddhists consider these realms to be actual locations, while others see them simply as states of mind, in Buddhist thought, the mind creates all we experience, so it comes down to about the same thing. You don't have to believe in rebirth to know that these realms are very real, truly reflective of the mind states ascribed to them. We all know that the torments of our minds do place us in hell right here on earth. 
place us in insatiable hunger and wanting, place us in excessive self-importance, place us in ignorance and not knowing. We can work with these states as corrective experiences. We must sometimes undergo their intense anguish to become motivated toward practice. Once we fully accept where we are, we're ready for release from these torments. When we see clearly what greed, hatred, and delusion is present in our minds, we can start rejecting these states with what freedom we have. Our rejecting ability is limited by how deeply we are trapped in our past conditioning to unwholesomeness. The torments of the mind do not magically disappear. Yet every choice we make, no matter how apparently insignificant, bends the mind in one direction or the other. We can become free with earnest struggle and surrender to the work that's being done in us. We know that we also can experience the happy realms in our human life. We can cultivate them by becoming increasingly generous and morally conscious. We can develop the heavenly states of mind, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. In the Christian scriptures, Jesus said that there were many mansions in his father's house. We can think of all these happy realms as those different mansions that are there for us to inhabit. There are heavens for those who are satisfied with the minimum, heavens of pleasures and delights. There are higher heavens who know and act upon the need to be pure of heart. And finally, there are those who, with Christian St. Augustine, will not rest until they rest in God or Nibbana. Then there's beyond heaven, the dying into God or Nibbana of the personal ego self. Spiritual traditions across time and cultures have discussed these same mansions, and we're all left with the choice. What do I want? For what will I dispose myself? May we all willingly accept the work of preparing our beings to be disposed toward the highest of all that's possible. And that's visiting heavens and hells. I mean, that's the talk. That's not the highest possible. It's beyond that. Um, questions or not? Questions if there are any. Mm -hmm. um, I'm even with my ears in, I don't hear real well, so people have to speak up. Thank you.
So in that sense, because we're getting, I, I kept hearing the reiteration of self and all concepts and constructs that move um, to self. So if one person is not in the state of self in which they should be, then other people can't technically reach that, right? If we're not together. And then don't, because we, we create a collective consciousness, right? And if we create a collective consciousness, then all have to be within self, which is relative. So you can't define self, right? But you can't say, oh, um, you're where you are. You say you're happy. Things feel as such, and then you reach that place. And this person's happy, that person's happy. And then you can create that place of heaven. But if you, if one person's off, if one part of the chain is broken, is it, is it safe or fair to say that you'll never have complete connectedness and you'll never reach a place of nirvana? It'll only be I, I think I have the question out of that. I think the question is, as long as everybody isn't there, can we say we're there? We, as as I mentioned, the Buddha said we can we can be we can learn how to be non-reactive to when others are off. We can learn how to be non-reactive to that. This is the piece of real estate that I'm responsible for. And if I do my practice and do my work, um, and I, that includes caring about others and cultivating appropriate attitudes and everything, but it doesn't involve trying to change others. That's part of that equanimity of the Brahma Vihara that you realize that, hey, it's other people's choices are going to determine their outcomes and I, I can't Force change on anybody else. So we have to come to live with that. So, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had anyway. So in the, the laws of mind, the according to the laws of mind, one of the laws says anger is just if it's for the, if it's for a cause of those who suffer. So you can fix things without getting angry. You you don't have to be angry to fix what's wrong. In fact, you probably screw it up if you act out of the anger, if you don't take care of the anger first. So anger is anger is a curse that should not be tapped into. Can it can it not be can it is it does it become a curse? Is it a curse? Or is it is it a cursed emotion? So does it always put you in a cloud of state? Or can it inspire you to do like I guess that's where well, some people say they need anger to be able to be motivated to fix things that are wrong. Um, compassion is a much better motivator to fix things that are wrong. And I think I'd better see if somebody else wants a chance now, because we don't have an awful lot of time. I, I don't know too many practicing Buddhists who have seven children. And so you're in an opportunity to share how you apply that sort of not attaching to the way you parented, and did you carry that throughout that child rearing, or were you really, did you fail? I mean, think about that. Um, I don't think there's a parent in the world who hasn't made mistakes, and I certainly made my share of mistakes in parenting. 
Unfortunately, a lot of the good things that I've learned came after my children were grown too, which it's, 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 it's just the way the world works sometimes. Um, there are some things I did with my children that I'm very happy that I did. I'll tell you the thing that I'm the happiest of all. I had a very narrow-minded, rigid, um, dogmatic, legalistic religious education foisted on me when I was young. And it created a lot of suffering to extricate myself from that. And I vowed that my children were not going to have to go through that kind of suffering so they always knew where I was with regard to religious and spiritual practices. I didn't hide that from them. But they were never made to believe that they had to be where I was. They, they, they had the freedom to explore. And that's one thing I did right. I did a lot of things wrong, though, too. <laughs> Anyone else? Father, um... Compare marriage to monastic life? Yeah, the, the household life or the Well, of course, I've lived, I've lived sort of in both of, of these places. They, they just have make different requirements of you. I, and when when one makes children, one has certain obligations and responsibilities toward those children until they're adult. And I think it's a major, major responsibility of marriage life. And if that is shirked, it's not going to be helpful. Um, there are certain occasions sometimes where one can, can leave that to somebody else to take care of. But for the most part, we have to be responsible for that. And I think that's a major part of married life, and if you made a commitment to another person, you should be there for that person's support also. Although, again, nothing is really absolute because there are times when we make commitments in good faith that um, it, it just be, be becomes apparent that it's better to leave the commitment. Of course, I'm speaking of divorce right now. Um, it, it, it's The main thing, I think, is... is, is to give other people what they have a right to from you, what, what they deserve from you. And that goes both ways in both of both forms of, of life. Um, I, I, I don't think I can make much comparison beyond that similarity. I was hurt when I said that the, the biggest learnings were not in the cell, the biggest learnings were in the inner hall. He said what? said that his biggest learnings were not in his monastic cell alone. They were in the dinner hall with his fellow monks. Mm. Yeah. Um, people who live in a, in a community have to deal with each other just like people who live in a family have to deal with each other. And um, that, when you're dealing with other human beings, it always involves interesting accommodations on everybody's <laughs> part. On everybody's part. Before she, before they tell me to shut up, there's one thing I want to. I brought with me. I don't know how many of you might be interested or know people who would be interested. I, I seldom bring anything with me. This time I put together um, 
As I said, this is our 25th year of doing what we call our Silence and Awareness Buddhist Christian Retreat. If you know anybody, or if you might be interested in it, I have the upcoming ones on here. And I have one additional one that we occasionally do, which is a 12-step mindfulness retreat. Um, a, A priest in the Toronto area who sat one of our Silence and Awareness Buddhist Christian Retreats was so taken with the practice, and he had done 35 years of 12-step work. Um, He's bringing me into Toronto next summer for us to lead a a nine-day 12-step mindfulness retreat. That's on here also, as well as the upcoming um, Silence and Awareness. And it has an email address that if you email that address um, and want to be notified of future things, um, I'll add you to our email mailing list. So anyone who would like a copy of that, please take it before you go. And were you about to tell me it's time to shut up? I was, in a very much more gentle way than that. <laughs> <laughs> and we can leave these out on the table in the lobby even after you go. So oh, you oh maybe you'd put one on the bulletin board so they don't all go. Thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.